Progress versus Parasites by Douglas Carswell. Chapter 3 The Engine of Progress. There's something appealing about the idea of being self sufficient. Producing all that we need for ourselves seems so simple and reassuring. But to be self sufficient is to be poor. By definition, doing everything yourself means forgoing the efforts of others. And it's those efforts of others, provided to us through free exchange, that have elevated our standard of living. The shortcomings of self-sufficiency were vividly demonstrated in a video posted online by a young American, Andy George, recently. He set about trying to make for himself a simple chicken sandwich. Except he didn't just reach into the fridge for the bread, the tomatoes, the lettuce and the chicken. He decided he was going to make it all from scratch. Firstly, he planted a vegetable patch to grow the pickle and salad and sowed the wheat for the bread. He travelled to the ocean to get seawater to boil the salt. He milked a cow to make the cheese and the butter. He ground the flour to make the bread. Then he killed the chicken before putting all the ingredients he'd gathered together to make the sandwich. It was all very wholesome and fulfilling, perhaps, except doing it all for himself meant it took him six months and cost him over $1,500. Imagine what life would be like in a world where something as basic as a chicken sandwich cost about the same amount that we today pay for an iPhone. Sandwiches would be a rare luxury like caviar. Smartphones would be the preserve of billionaires and kings. We'd all feel pretty poor. Of course, if you or I today want a chicken sandwich, we need merely to walk into a supermarket and buy one for what we could earn in 10 or 15 minutes working on the minimum wage. Instead of having to do the whole business of producing chickens and the cheese and the butter and all the rest of it, we can rely on the efforts of a network of others and pay them from the proceeds of the specialised work, the job, that we do. From six months down to 15 minutes, from $1,500 down to a few dollars, therein lies the difference between self-sufficiency and specialisation and exchange. It's specialisation and exchange that is the essence of human civilization. It provides us not only with affordable food, it enables us to escape the dawn-to-dusk drudgery our ancestors endured. Specialisation and exchange gives us time to read novels or to write them, to patent inventions or to play football. It's what has lifted our species from the swamp to the stars. Specialisation and exchange don't just make us materially better off. The interdependence that comes with it has helped civilise us too. As an animal species, we come into contact with unrelated strangers all the time, in supermarket aisles, on trains, and in the cinema. For the most part, these encounters occur with no violence, and the occasional amicable interaction, perhaps. It would be impossible to imagine almost any other animal species coming into contact with so many strangers in such close proximity without aggression and violence. In our archaic past, people were, by modern standards, extraordinarily aggressive. 
perhaps it paid to be aggressive to an unknown outsider back then. When we lived in small, self-sufficient communities, we held human life in low regard. As we've come to depend on an ever-widening network of specialization and exchange, we've increased our empathy for one another. The greater our independence, interdependence on others, the greater our regard for others. Once humans formed the habit of exchange and interdependence, aggression might not have been quite such a sensible default setting needed to survive, at least some of the time. You don't need to look back to prehistoric times to see societies full of everyday violence. Using court and county records, the political scientist Ted Robert Gurr has calculated homicide rates in England since the Middle Ages. Merry England was in fact a rather murderous place. Oxford in the 13th century had a homicide rate three times above south-central Los Angeles at the height of the US crack cocaine epidemic of the early 1990s. The murder rate in England today is 95% lower than it was in the Middle Ages. Think of the most violent countries today. Colombia with a homicide rate of 52 per 100,000 per year. Or South Africa with a homicide rate of 69 per 100,000 per year. London in the 14th century was more violent than today. Italy and the Netherlands in the early 15th century had higher homicide rates than South Africa does now. Steve Pinker suggests that the rise of the market economy in Europe prompted a fall in violence from its medieval ages, as commerce and interdependence brought about a change in cultural mores. Repeated transactions among trading partners encouraged trustworthiness. The more interdependent we've become, the greater has been the decline in violence, and with that, a gradual shift in society towards gentler, less coarse manners and pastimes. If the secret of human success is our interdependence, the habit we have of specialization and exchanging with one another, why did it not happen faster? Why did it only generate a world of plenty in the past two or three hundred years, if not before? Interdependence means exchanging with others, and perhaps in the past there just weren't that many others to exchange with. For much of our existence, humans have lived in small, scattered groups with little scope for interaction. 12,000 years ago, there were not many more than 2 million people alive on the entire Earth. That's equivalent to the population of Nebraska or Kiev spread out across an otherwise empty world. There would hardly have been enough people to exchange hand axes with, let alone chicken sandwiches. 6,000 years ago, the population might have increased to about 30 to 40 million people, but that's still pretty sparse. It would be as if the only people alive on Earth were Canadians, and they were scattered not only across the northern half of North America, but South America, Asia, Africa, Australia, and Europe too. We know that by the Bronze Age, the human habit of exchange was well established. Otzi, the Bronze Age man found encased in an alpine glacier, for example, wore shoes that were so sophisticated and made from so many materials, it's hard to imagine that they were the product of any one person. More likely they were the product and the work of a specialist cobbler. If specialization in exchange happened, 
why wasn't there more of it happening a lot sooner? Matt Ridley puts forward the theory that isolation not only inhibits technological development, but societies cannot sustain more than the most basic level of technology unless they're interconnected. Citing the example of Tasmania, which became separated from mainland Australia at the end of the last ice age, Ridley argues that technology in Tasmania regressed. Sure enough, it's after the advent of farming and the establishment of sedentary populations and the emergence of the first city-states that we start to see all sorts of inventions from writing to the wheel. Yet if isolation inhibited innovation and progress, it wasn't the only factor. Even after farming and the rise of cities, progress remained painfully slow. Per capita output, be it in ancient Mesopotamia or pre-Columbian Mexico, were at subsistence levels even though people started to have more neighbours. Indeed, the number of neighbours increased in line with any growth in the food supply, which is why almost everyone in such societies remained poor. Strictly speaking, the term feudalism refers specifically to a social organisation that existed in medieval Europe. In such a feudal society, an aristocratic elite held lands in exchange for military service, while peasant farmers on those lands paid them homage, labour, and a share of the harvest. The term, however, has come to denote any set of social arrangements where a mass of peasant farmers provide their surplus to their overlords. In that latter sense of the term, feudalism was the norm in most agricultural societies, from the Neolithic age until the early modern era. From Laos in the Middle Ages to Buganda in the 19th century, we see the same essential arrangements of a small caste of warriors and priests ruling over a mass of farmers. It was this parasitic arrangement that kept people poor. Parasitic elites impoverished agricultural societies directly by extracting from those that produced the wealth as much as they could. From Ming China to Mughal India, it was not uncommon for farmers to pay taxes, tolls and tributes that added up to between 40 and 60% of their total produce. But there was a second, even more important way in which overbearing elites kept the societies over which they presided poor. They denied those societies the gains that they might otherwise have had from specialisation and exchange. Under parasitic elites, resources within society were seldom allocated through free exchange. Normally, economic resources exchange hands because one party demanded or commanded them. Under a system of spontaneous exchange, it's not just merchants and middlemen that do well. It's to the advantage of both buyers and sellers who make the exchange in the first place because it leaves them better off. Rather than allowing such self-organising economic systems of specialisation and exchange to evolve, with all the complexities that come with them. For most of human history, small elites have used a combination of command and custom to direct populations and to take their cut. They rigged things so that they could live at the expense of the productive. The supposed greatness of many great civilizations around the world is often a measure of the success that an elite within those societies had in extorting and expropriating from a mass of peasant producers, or simply biffing the neighbours. For many such civilizations, perhaps their achievement was their ability to last, something they achieved by changing little as they replicated the same self-perpetuating 
stasis from one generation to the next. Even when different dynasties came and went for farmers on the banks of the Nile or the Euphrates, the Yangtze or the Indus, life in AD 1000 was pretty much what it would have been like in 1000 BC. Feudal societies stayed poor because the elites that presided over them inhibited free exchange, denying them all of the gains that might otherwise have flowed from it. When redistributive exchange is used to allocate resources, it tends to hinder the most productive. If a farmer knows that he will have his gain, if a farmer knows that he will have his grain taken from him, leaving him only the bare minimum required to feed his family, what incentive does he have to increase his yield? In order to achieve intensive economic growth with output rising per person, it's necessary to invest in order to expand production. A good harvest one year might give a farmer more time to clear some of the forest and increase the size of his field. Amazon today plows its profits back in order to expand the scope of what it sells. But what if you have a surplus-sucking elite hoovering up whatever it can? There's no surplus to invest and therefore no chance of improved productivity. Nor can an economic system based on custom, command and control generate the kind of complex supply systems needed to increase productivity. Think back to our example of a humble chicken sandwich. If you buy one for lunch, you are in effect being fed because a lot of other people are working for you. In order to produce that chicken sandwich, an elaborate symphony of supply chains has had to come together. From the harvesting of the wheat, to the husbandry of the chicken, to the transporting, plucking, packaging, all kinds of effort went into making your sandwich. And it all had to happen with precision timing. Everyone involved in each of those processes, even those working on minimum wages, did so voluntarily. From the farmer who sold his grain to the shop worker who sold his labour, putting the sandwich on the shelf, they served you because they stood to gain from doing so. Imagine if instead it was all arranged by top-down direction and fiat. It wouldn't take long before the complex supply chain started to break down. For most of human history, people have worked for other people, not as willing providers of specialised services in a supply chain, but as supplicants, often acting in response to demands and under duress. The sophisticated supply chains needed to produce even the most basic goods require free exchange. The tragedy for most of human history is that the parasitic have prevailed over the productive, and productivity per person has remained constant as a consequence. Extractive elites at the apex of most settled societies have been hostile to free exchange, and indeed hostile to those who engage in it. This is why specialisation and exchange never developed in the way it might have done. Progress remained slow for as long as parasitism prevailed over production. Isn't that all a bit simplistic, you interject? Not, not all economic interaction is either redistributive or mutual. Even in autocratic states, there must have been some trade. Even in the most laissez-faire systems, there is redistribution. You're absolutely right. There is indeed a spectrum, and along it, no society on Earth has ever existed that managed to achieve authentically sustainable intensive economic growth by being on the redistributive end of it.
just occasionally before 1800 AD, there did emerge a few societies in which the productive were no longer entirely at the mercy of the powerful. Specialization and exchange could reach beyond the provision of the rudimentary. In antiquity, among the republics of Greece and perhaps Rome, and in the Middle Ages within the Republic of Venice, as well as within the empire of the Abbasid in Iraq and the Song in China, and then in the 16th century within the Dutch Republic, there was a sustained increase in per capita output. The motor of progress was allowed for a few fleeting generations to run free. Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress versus Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell, and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book. If you're interested in hearing more from this series, please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast.